Tim, you can't read music, can you? I didn't think so. All right. Just checking. So that means I could even join the choir. Right? That would be crazy. Oh, that boy. would be crazy. Did I say everybody? <laughs> All right. So, so we're going to tag team this sermon this morning. I'm going to handle the first part, Ezekiel chapter 1. So would you pray with me? Let's pray together. Lord, at the beginning of 2022, we open your word again, expecting to hear from you. We're excited, Lord, because we definitely need a word from you to start this new year. So we trust that your Holy Spirit will translate for us the things that are said this morning here from a couple of human, ordinary, broken preachers. In your name, Jesus, we pray. Amen. So back in the day, my daughter Lena, the second-born child, was a high-level gymnast. She reached level 10 at the age of 8th grade. Um, we tried softball, we tried ballet, disaster. We went, moved to gymnastics, and for whatever reason, it took off. She used to be able to, I remember watching her as like a third grader, climb to the top of the gym on a rope uh, using just her hands, not her legs at all. She used to stand on her hands for a long time. She could just walk around the house on her hands, crazy. Do backflips on a balance beam, all kinds of other crazy tricks. Now, the reason I'm telling you this is because the last February, when the Olympics were on, Simone Biles developed this condition called the twisties. Lena was the first to come to her defense. Lena told us she had had the twisties. We all were like, that explains a lot, Lena. We understand now. Um, but she said, you know, she went right to this, you know, the twisties. You know, I, I've, I've had this. This is terrible. Twisties can be defined as um, disassociation that leaves you as a gymnast unable or disoriented in midair, unable to find your landing spot, unable to see or catch a vision of where you're supposed to end up on the mat. It's super dangerous to do tricks, apparently, in gymnastics with the twisties. You can really hurt yourself. You can kill yourself. You could land all wrong. So we saw Simone Biles go from doing these unbelievable tricks to doing just ordinary, simple stuff, things I might have been able to do, even. Right? We were like, what's going on with Simone Biles? People were yelling at her. She was having a fit. Now, as we enter 2022, there's a lot of people in our culture who have the twisties. Yeah, they've been brought on by a lot of things. COVID, of course, has been going on for almost two years now. Right? On top of that, we've got all kinds of uh, misinformation. We've got all kinds of stuff coming at us that's leading us all different directions. We've got uh, science, which is all over the map. We're not even sure where to who to trust or where to turn for really the right information. We have the twisties. We have a sense of disequilibrium. It's all across the world. I traveled to Philadelphia this week. It's all anyone talks about. Just how whacked out the world is, how messed up it is, how... How do we find our way? How do we find our equilibrium in this world? Now, you would think this would lead people to look to a higher power, to look to a God to give them a way forward. You would think that it would help them to want to, I don't know, say, I can't handle this. I need to surrender. But instead, you know what we do? Same thing gymnasts do. They get focused on the twisties instead of focused on the skills they're doing. And as soon as you focus on the twisties, it gets even worse. We as a culture have focused on the twisties. We've tried to figure out how do we fix this? How do we get back to normal? How do we get this all right straight out? We spend tons of energy and time thinking about this stuff. 
Now this is a very similar spot to where the people of Israel found themselves as we begin the, begin the book of Ezekiel. Most of them had been carried off into another country, Babylon, from their home country, Israel. They had been given God's vision for who they were supposed to be as a people. They were supposed to be a kingdom of priests, a holy nation, a people belonging to God, a people that put this display on display to the world who God really was. But they had miserably failed at this. They had totally messed it up. And now they had been carried off into another whole country. They had a bad case of the twisties. The God-given vision for their lives had not been realized. On top of that, they were full of questions. Has God left us? Has God forgotten us? Has God stopped looking in our direction? What's happening? Now part of their problem was that their faith, their religious practice, their relationship with God was all tied up in this building in Jerusalem. Because that building, the temple, was where God actually hung out. In the temple, the Holy of Holies, over the Ark of the Covenant, was his presence. So when they were torn away from that and carried to Babylon, they had no idea how to relate to God in a foreign country. They didn't have their religious practices at the temple to lean on. They no longer had all their priests to lead them along. They didn't have a place to go. So they found themselves with even a worse case of the twisties. If we're really honest, even when they were practicing those religious practices before they left for Babylon, most of those were super empty, super rote, super external. There wasn't a lot of deep connection with God going on. Now, in 2022, in all honesty, we live in a culture where most people have written the church off. People figure the church is not the place to find the answer to their twisties. They consider the church and its kind of happenings, its doings, as kind of these rote practices that people go through, but there's not a lot of power in them. There's not a lot of transcendence. There's not a lot of, like, connection with God. There's just people going through the motions. So tons of people have walked away from this thing we call the church. Now, this is all why the book of Ezekiel, the beginning of it, is so relevant to our modern situation, to the year 2022. Ezekiel was a priest who had been living in Jerusalem during the first Babylonian attack on his country. During this first attack, the Babylonians spared the city but they carried off a select few people. Ezekiel was part of the wave of prisoners that had been carried off in exile. So the book of Ezekiel begins five years after that, that whole attack. Ezekiel's sitting by a river, the Kabar River in Babylon, and he's pondering his life. It's his 30th birthday near the refugee camp, the Israeli refugee camp, and he's sitting there pondering, man, if I was in Jerusalem... I'd be installed as a priest on my 30th birthday, but instead, here I sit by this river, not even, even my homeland, I'm a prisoner. And while he sits by the river, pondering all this, he has a vision. So let's read some of this. It's on the screens. As I looked, I saw a great storm coming from the north, driving before it a huge cloud that flashed with lightning and shone with brilliant light. There was fire inside the cloud, and in the middle of the fire glowed something like gleaming amber. So Ezekiel sees this bright light coming toward him. In fact, he sees these creatures coming toward him. 
These creatures are in this cloud and they have faces and they have wings. They're clearly angels. Now, angels in our culture tend to be these plump little guys with nice little wings and they're super nice and whatever, you know, kind of tame. In Eastern literature, angels are fierce. They're warriors. They're guardians of sacred space and the throne of the invisible God. So let's keep reading. The living beings look like bright coals of fire or brilliant torches, and lightning seemed to flash back and forth among them. And the living beings darted to and fro like flashes of lightning. These angels are bright, powerful. Lightning and fire, right, consume them. And then we get this vision. It turns our attention to these wheels that are on this chariot that's coming toward us, carrying these angels. And these wheels spin in all directions, meaning that God's presence can move anywhere. That God's always on the move, always, never sitting still, always on the move. Even when it seems like he's sitting still, he's on the move. And so we read more about this. The beings could move in any of the four directions they faced. The four directions probably are the four uh, points of the compass. So it's kind of pointing us anywhere he wants to go. The rims of the four wheels were tall and frightening, and they were covered with eyes all around. Wow. Eyes on the wheels. So again, God's given us this picture. I can see everything. My eyes are looking all directions. Nothing escapes my vision, my sight. It's all in my sight. And then finally, the vision kind of uh, concludes with this amazing picture of the person who's driving the chariot. Check this out. Above this surface was something that looked like a throne made of blue lapis lazuli. And on this throne, high above, was a figure whose appearance resembled a man. From what, happened to be, from what appeared to be his waist up, he looked like gleaming amber, flickering like a fire. And from his waist down, he looked like a burning flame, shining with splendor. All around him was a glowing halo, like a rainbow, shining in the clouds of a, on a rainy day. This is what the glory of the Lord looked like to me. So God is riding towards Ezekiel on his royal throne chariot. And Ezekiel concludes, this must be the glory of the Lord. Now, glory in Hebrew is the word kavad. It means heavy or significant. The biblical authors use this to describe God's physical appearance and manifestation of God's significance when he shows up in person. These images are very similar to the vision that God gives of himself in the book of Exodus and the description of his presence over the Ark of the Covenant. And the most shocking thing about this, what is God doing here in Babylon? Why is his presence here in Babylon? He's supposed to be in the temple in Jerusalem, but he's here. That's crazy. Now, I don't know if any of you have ever had a vision of God God ever given you a picture of himself? Have you ever had a moment when you've known you're in the presence of the heavy, weighty, significant God of the universe? Can you think back on your life? Remember those moments? Maybe it was reading your Bible by yourself in the morning and suddenly it was as if, as if God was speaking directly to you as you read. Maybe it was a church service we were sitting here and suddenly it seemed as if something happened and the atmosphere changed and the significance and glory of God settled here among us. 
I don't know. Has it ever happened for you? Ezekiel's reminding his people, God's people, that this is what it's all about. That the only way you get over the twisties is with a life-giving connection with a holy God. Literally basking in his presence. Proverbs 9.10 says it this way. Skilled living gets its start in the fear of God, insight into life from knowing a holy God. Knowledge in Hebrew goes beyond head knowledge. It's an experiential involvement with God. It's an engagement with him that goes beyond just knowing he exists. You know, I've had probably, I was thinking this week, a lot of these experiences. Many of them happen at camp. This will amuse the landingers because I, I always count how many times I say camp, but um, a few years ago, uh, well, many years ago, I was invited to speak at a camp in California. And um, it was a camp where I knew Billy Graham had spoken and some other people had spoken. So when I was in the chapel, I was thinking, why am I here? This is crazy. Why would they invite Jeff Klein to speak in this camp? I was completely overwhelmed with this whole thing, thinking, I don't belong here. And the first morning of camp, they gave us time for devotions. I climbed up to the highest mountain behind the camp, sat next to a big giant, I think it was a redwood tree, and I sat there with my Bible, and I just was like, okay, Lord, I don't know why you sent me here. I don't know what's going on. Uh, uh. And then I seriously heard the Lord say to me, I want you to pick up and read Ezekiel. I'm like, Ezekiel? It's a weird book. I'm reading Ezekiel. But I picked up Ezekiel, and I started reading right at chapter 1. And the reason I'm telling you this, because it was a moment of total encouragement that God had sent me in that moment to that camp to those kids to speak his word. And actually, the passage that Greg's going to speak about next is the passage that God really hit me over the head with. So I'm going to let Greg come up and explain that passage to you. All right, thanks, bro. Whenever I hear the words from Ezekiel chapter 1, it makes me think about UFOs, honestly. Just like the weird chariot covered in eyes and it can move in any direction and it, the lightning and the fire. Um, so this chariot represents the glory of God and God's presence wants to bring God's people out of this time of the twisties is a great word. It's not Ezekiel himself who is going to be up for this job, right? And in our current culture, if we are collectively, globally, in America, suffering from the twisties, it is not the pastors, it's not even the church, just because the church is here in and of itself, that's going to bring our culture through. It's that God is going to put something into the church, and God is going to put something into Ezekiel that is able to chart the way forward. Here's what God does next in Ezekiel chapter 2. Says Ezekiel's talking, the Lord said to me, Now, son of man, stand up on your feet, and I will speak to you. And as he spoke, the Spirit came into me. That is the key phrase. The Spirit came into me and raised me to my feet, and I heard him speaking to me. And he said, Son of man, I am sending you to the Israelites, my people, to a rebellious nation that has rebelled against me. They and their ancestors have been in revolt against me to this very day. The people to whom I am sending you are obstinate and stubborn. 
Now the glory of God, the spirit of God have been moving and made manifest in Ezekiel chapter 1, but now the same spirit enters into Ezekiel and commissions him, gives him a new job. Ezekiel's job is going to speak to God's people, to Israel. They are God's chosen people, 100% yes, but they are a tough audience, I think would be our modern way of putting it. They are a tough audience. They are rebellious, they are stubborn, and they are obstinate. Those are God's words for his dearly loved, precious people. But Ezekiel is not going to be on his own with this. He's not his own speechwriter. God and God's spirit are going to give him the words. Right? There's such confidence knowing that you stand on something that you are receiving from God rather than something that you're just making up on the fly. Um, as a person who regularly like, does some public speaking, I feel so sorry for people like, who have to write political speeches, like the president's speechwriter. What an impossible and difficult and thankless job. And the world is changing every second, and you're trying to read everything in global culture and say something new and beneficial to millions and millions and millions of people. At least here in church, if you lead a Bible study, if you lead a small group, um, if you're just talking to a friend, like the confidence you can have that you don't have to make it up or have an opinion so amazing and creative and strong, but if you can repeat something that God has given you, incredible. Ezekiel 2 verses 7 says exactly this. You must speak my words to them. And whether they listen or fail to listen, for they are rebellious. But you, son of man, listen to what I say to you, and don't rebel like that rebellious people. Open your mouth and eat what I give you. Now that is a curious phrase. God is telling Ezekiel to eat what he's about to give him. How, how is God going to get his word, his ideas, his visions into Ezekiel. Ezekiel, as God's chosen prophet, needs to eat the word of the Lord. Have you ever seen a little kid who does something like this? Like, usually by age three, we humans stop doing this, but maybe at age one or two, especially if you have an older brother or sister, like, kids eat board books. Anybody ever seen their younger sibling or a kid or a grandkid do this? I love this. And now, one part of this is why, why do little kids do this? Well, partly they put everything in their mouth. But why do they put everything in their mouth? Because, like, this is how they experience the world. They don't understand all the words yet. They can't pick up heavy things yet. But, like, if you can get a taste sensory perception, you can understand something a little bit more. We go to school, and then we figure out the way we're supposed to operate with books is like you open the book, you read the words, you're supposed to remember the right stuff so that when a teacher gives you a test, you can regurgitate the right stuff. Like that becomes our relationship with books the older we get, and it's all about just obtaining information and our remembering and mastering the information. Like for sure that's a great thing, and it's great that we can communicate that way. But books can actually do something way more incredible than that. Like books can get you to experience a story and make a connection with a character or a time or an author. It's like not only getting the info into your head, it's like the book can find its way like into your heart. And if a novel can do that, if a good movie can do that, like God's word 
aspires to be the ultimate thing that gets inside of us. And when God speaks about this and God's own desire to get his words and ideas into this, it's not just, hey, know some stuff. It is eat the word. Get it as deep into you as possible so that it's a part of you. Here's what happens next. This is Ezekiel talking now. And then I looked, and I saw a hand stretched out to me, and in it was a scroll, more scrolls than books in those days, which he unrolled before me. And on both sides of it were written words of lament and mourning and woe. Sounds like an awesome book, right? And he said to me, this messenger from God, son of man, eat what is before you. Eat this scroll and then go and speak to the people of Israel. So I opened my mouth and he gave me the scroll to eat. And then he said to me again, son of man, eat this scroll I am giving you and fill your stomach with it. So I ate it and it tasted as sweet as honey in my mouth. So here's this paradoxical thing. When you receive this gift from God, for Ezekiel personally, or the church to this day, like, it is beautiful and sweet. Like, you're receiving the best gift ever because it's God's ideas, God's visions, God's words. And on the way in, you can't do anything but just think how sweet it is to be loved by God. But then the scroll, because Ezekiel's going to have to repeat some of the words, like, it is not going to go down smooth because the words are bitter. Words that are going to cause mourning and lament and woe because is everybody living according to God's word? Of course not. And change is difficult. And if God's word is going to inspire and catalyze change, like there's going to be some hard times ahead. There is a scene in the final book of the Bible that is almost exactly like this where one of Jesus' disciples John the Apostle, who is imprisoned on an island in the Mediterranean Sea, is having a vision first of Jesus and then of angels. These words are not on the screen, but just listen to how similar these words are. This is John's talking. And the angel said to me, take this book and eat it. It will turn your stomach sour, but in your mouth it will be sweet as honey. So I took it from the angel's hands and ate it, and indeed, it tasted as sweet and honey as honey in my mouth. But when I had eaten it, my whole stomach turned over sour. And then I was told, you must prophesy again about many peoples, nations, languages, and kings. This is not a one scene only in the scripture, but something God repeats at several different crucial junctures in the history of God giving his word that messengers eat the word of the Lord, and it tastes amazing, and then gives them 100% indigestion. For us, all these years later, if God's word is going to get us through this time of the twisties, if God is going to get us through our personal messed up stuff and twisties, like how do we get this word into us? How do we eat the book? I mean, I grew up in a household where it was very clear you're supposed to read your Bible and pray every day. Like, those are good things. But eating the book, like, that is God's New Year's wish for all of us. Not to just read it, not to just know a little more, but to eat the book. 
In my experience, um, a few things have helped the word get beyond my brain, deeper into my heart and spirit. One is to memorize, because if I repeat it and turn it over, it starts to sink down just a little bit deeper. Another is to say it out loud, because if I read the scripture just in my own little monologue, in my own little voice, it's just a little bit powerful, but when, like this morning, when we read words from Psalm 147 all together, or sometimes when we read the scripture all together, it obtains a whole new strength and power hearing it in your voice or putting earbuds in and listening to someone else. I prefer someone with the English accent, actually, like reading parts of the Bible because it helps me get beyond my own defenses and gets it a little deeper into me. Um, we are trying to encourage as many three-person groups that we are calling by the word Havarim to begin, which means spiritual friends, because when you have a little bit of scripture and have a conversation about that scripture and where your life overlap for even a half hour or 40 minutes, like that's when things start to get real. Not just check, I went to a church service on Sunday morning, so like I'm a pretty good person, but like I really talked about what I am going through with some other people, and this word got through the cracks. There are dozens and dozens of other ways, but the important thing is not just to get it in your frontal cortex, but to eat the book. That is God's way for getting us to move forward. In conclusion, a couple thoughts. Jesus of Nazareth is also the Word of God, right? We read this text at Christmas time. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. And if you think of the entire universe as an organism or as a person, one of the things that happened at Christmas time is like God sent the living Word, who is Jesus, into the guts of the universe so that all of us all together, all creation, might have the living book inside of it. That's an amazing thought <laughs> to me. The other amazing thought is God desires to do what he did on the cosmic level on a little micro level with each of us, with our church for sure, and each of us on an individual and small level that the word who became flesh for the life of the world might also become the word who gives life to my flesh. Sometimes we can say that like a writer of songs writes a melody or a song that it's almost like they put themselves into the music. You ever heard somebody say like that, something like that? Or an author who cleverly makes themselves a character in their own story. In essence, that is what the creator of the universe did through Jesus. He made himself a living character in the story of the world that he made. He made Jesus to be the leading melody in the song that he is writing through human history. And he desires to make this same Jesus the one who is at the center of your inner being. Friends, this is one of the reasons I think we come to Jesus' table at crucial moments and moments like this. Because it's one thing to hear about Jesus it's another thing to read the words. And then it's next level to follow Jesus' command who says that he is the bread of life, to follow his command, to literally eat his body and drink his blood 
because Jesus' desire is to be in our very core, in our very center. So together today, we come to his table to start the new year. If you would follow along uh, the words on the screen, let's prepare our hearts together. Sisters and brothers, the Lord be with you. And also with you. Lift up your hearts. We lift them up to the Lord. Let us give thanks to the Lord our God. It is right to give our thanks and praise. And then following John chapter 1. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. The Lord is in our midst, present in bread and wine. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son. We behold the glory of God made visible in the humble gifts of this table. The glory of the Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. We stand amazed at the union of human and divine in your flesh, Lord Jesus. On the night that he was betrayed, our Lord took bread, and after he had given thanks to God, he broke it in the presence of his disciples and said this, This is now my body, which is given for you. As often as you eat of it, do this in remembrance of me. And after they had eaten together, Jesus took the cup, poured it out in their presence and said, this cup is now a cup of the new covenant given for you in my blood. As often as you drink of it, do this and remember me. Will you pray with me a moment? Lord Jesus, we do stand amazed that you came from the invisible reality of the eternal presence of God the Father to walk the streets of planet Earth, that you became the living word, and that beyond that, that you have made yourself available through your sacrifice on the cross and through the mystery of your resurrection so that you can take up a similar dwelling inside of us. Lord Jesus, we want to receive the best of gifts, which is you. We do so now with hearts full of gratitude and thanks. In your name, we pray, Lord. Amen. Pastor Jeff is going to say a word about the logistics.